Welcome. Good to have you back in the bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. I'm Kate Gibson, and we are the podcast that makes the case for all kinds of books, and I love working our tagline into our open. Our little slogan. (laughs) It is good to have you with us, though, because we're going to give you a wonderful book to consider this week. A teacher in the New York public schools has written a novel. That's a unique background to be a writer because it gives him a rich body of experiences from which he writes, and it is an integral part of his writing. But it's more than that. His name is Sadiq Fofana. S-I-D-I-K-F-O-F-A-N-A. Sadiq Fofana. And the book is Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. Kate, we both loved it. It's a really rich novel. It comes from varying points of view. Every chapter is written from the point of view of a tenant in this government high-rise called Benneker Terrace. And I guess you could look at it from the character's point of view, either as a as a home or in some ways as a prison, because a lot of people are trapped in Banneker Terrace, but it is slowly being gentrified. So in a way, it could be any building in the U.S. It could be in Detroit. It could be in Dallas. It could be in L.A. In this case, it's in it's in Harlem, and it is the only character that appears in every chapter. And it is very it's a very vivid place. It's a very vivid atmosphere. I mentioned Sadiq as a teacher. I wish after I'd read this book and put it down, I thought I wish we could make thousands and thousands of carbon copies of Sadiq, because every parent and every child would be lucky to have this man as your teacher. The stories that he tells are rich. And as Katie mentioned, this is a fictional high-rise, but a fictional high-rise that is really, takes on the nature of a character uh, in the book. And it stands for buildings that are in every city. But to quote him, he talks about the building having four elevators, many of which don't work at times, a trash chute that smells like rotten milk. And when he writes about it, you can smell it, you can feel it, you can experience it. It's almost visceral. His powers of description are so rich. Yeah, you've either driven by, as he describes this long-ass gray building, you've either driven by, you've visited it, or you've, you've lived in it. It is a building in every city in America. The characters really stay with you. The stories really stay with you. And I, I loved this book. It left me speechless. <laughs> the stories are harrowing, but so are they redeeming. And you root for these characters. You really want them to succeed. They aspire. They know what the American dream is, and they identify with their dreams. But it's so hard for them to realize those dreams. So again, the name of the author, Sadiq Fofana, and the book is Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. Here's our conversation. All right, welcome, Sadiq Fofana, to the bookcase. We are so excited to have you here. We could not put stories from the tenant downstairs down. In fact, we both read it twice because in some ways the first reading of it affected me so much that I don't think I got a chance to really read the language, which I felt like I really got a chance to do the second time. Baedeker Terrace, living character throughout the book. In fact, the only character to appear in all of the chapters so it's so important. It feels like that's where we should start. If you could tell me a little bit about Banneker Terrace. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a great honor. Yeah. Banneker Terrace, you know, is the fictional building in Harlem where all of the tenants in the book live. And based on buildings that I've seen in Harlem, 
It's based on places I've lived. It reminds me a lot of where I lived in Brooklyn, in Harlem, in the Bronx, and my hometown as well in Boston. It reminds me of a lot of the places in my neighborhood. And so it's kind of a, a, a stand-in, a vehicle that represents urban building USA, a building that's in flux, that's dealing with gentrification. It's kind of a, a symbol for the places and, and the spaces that's happening throughout America. I love the way you describe it. One long gray-ass building, four mm. elevators that got minds of their own, long <laughs> machines that don't wash clothes right. It is the common theme through all of these stories written by different tenants of the building. Describe the tenants for me. What do they have in common? I think that what the tenants have in common is their search for the American dream. They all have aspirations. Whether those aspirations are realistic, that's another story. Whether their pursuit of those aspirations, the ease of that pursuit has to do with them or the world at large is another discussion, but they all are searching for America the dream. And I think in terms of biological stats, they are as diverse as they come, you know, they're tall, they're short, male, female, sexual orientation, politics, you know, education level, but they're all searching for a goal and they're striving towards that goal. Did you have this book already when you became a teacher? Is this a book that evolved throughout your teaching career? What was the timeline for it? I started it, I would say, the year or two before I started teaching. I mean, I've always been fascinated with voice and how people talk and, and the oral story. And so I think one of the perks, I think, of teaching, you know, you don't get many perks as a teacher. It's still a rewarding <laughs> job, but you don't get many perks. Uh, you might get a free lunch. <laughs> You might get a free ticket to the prom, <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the other perks is an unlimited amount of stories, whether it's the stories you tell the students, the story the students tell you, the stories that unravel before your eyes. And so once I started teaching, I taught in Brownsville and so many stories that were just harrowing, redeeming, just shocking, those came to me. And what, and what, inspired me even more than the, the limited vast amount of stories was the voice and how students talk to each other. You know, the different regionalisms one community could have. And so the very first story in that collection was the young entrepreneurs of Miss Bristol's front porch. And a lot of the girls in that story reminded me of my first English class, which was a class of 15 girls and I was just so fascinated about, by the way they talk, like it bees like that. It's OD, you fiending, you violating, <laughs> you know, it's lit, uh, things like that. Katie mentioned you're a teacher. You should tell people where you teach, what you teach. I'm a proud New York City educator. I teach in, in Bushwick in Brooklyn and I teach English language arts and I'm also a special education teacher. And my school is the, it's the old Bushwick High School campus, and they've kind of broken it down into four smaller schools, of which I teach in one. And so I teach, uh, I teach all the grades, just different grades at different years, you know, it's a hodgepodge. 
You're a Renaissance teacher. <laughs> so speaking of Renaissance, all of these different chapters or a lot of these different chapters have different narrative points of view. There's first person, there's third person, there's omniscience, there is observational. There's, I think even there's a chapter, a very powerful chapter written in letter form. I'm interested. There's all these different ways to experience these people's stories. How did you go about matching the right narrative point of view with the story? That's a great question. I kind of stumbled and tease my way through it. A story like The Rent Manual, which is the first story, which is about a woman who just strives to make rent in a month, that story started out in first person. Mm. You know, just reading it back and then just hearing feedback from my peers, there was just something uh, missing. And I felt like just adding it, making it a how-to, an instructional point of view told from the second person in the form of a command you do this, do that, do this, made it a tiny bit fresher. Now, you know, anyone who, who knows literary fiction knows that, that, you know, I'm not entirely original in that. There have been masters of that type of uh, point of view. I can name um, Juno Diaz and Lori Moore, you know, off the top immediately. N.K. Jamison does some nice stuff with it, too, in her science fiction. Yeah, yes, yes. So, we know that like that's, you know, that in itself is totally not original, but I thought that it would give an, an original point of original perspective, original way of telling a story. You know, I've always been teasing this idea of the accidental story, the hmm. person who's telling a story, but he doesn't know or she doesn't know that she is telling a story. And so whenever I could, I tried to make it so that the character is unaware that they're telling a story. Mr. Murray, who's playing mm. chess, to him, he's just playing an opponent and he's just telling the opponent about his life and not necessarily constructing a, sh a short story. Mm. And so when you have all these vo voices, I had all these voices, I think on page, the biggest challenge was how do I differentiate these people? How do I uh, make one not sound like the other? And it was through word choice a lot of times. A lot of time it was through form, like you said, with the letter, point of view. You know, some characters I decided that they would curse a lot <laughs> and some characters would not even say darn, you know. Um, whenever I could, I try to differentiate that. And I think the form and the point of view had a lot to do with just my attempt to make to increase the diversity of the voices. I think, Sadiq, that's what makes the book so rich, that the voices mm. are so distinctive, mm. so pure, and so consistent as you tell their stories. I mm. wondered as I read it, did you start with story or did you start with voice? I started with voice. And I started with how things, the differences in, in speech pattern. But to be honest, I started with story too, but I just didn't start with written story. I, th I started with the oral story. And so I think storytelling is something that we all have. It's an innate, it's something that's not taught. It's just it's something that we just as humans have. The most raw, instinctive stories are spoken. And that's not to patronize the oral story because, you know, the Odyssey is a spoken story. You know, that was spoken before it was delivered onto paper. You can even go as high as Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote his plays, but 
we read them. I think in Shakespeare's time, most people encountered his stories by listening and watching on the stage. And so that idea of someone speaking a story and how they speak it and what they naturally do to uh, keep the audience engaged and what they just kind of do off the cuff. Like, I'm always interested when somebody's like, so boom, this happened. So boom, like, why do you say it's just an instinctive thing that we do and um, the things that we repeat and the way that we provide suspense. So that idea of the verbal bard who is speaking a story to an audience who's not reading it, but encountering it with their ears. But I want to also ask you, because I'm always interested in books like this, as to how you decided on the arc yourself. Mm -hmm. When you had all of these stories, how did you then decide, I'm Mm going to start with this one, and I'm going to end with this one. And I want to ask you, too, the story that you ended with felt almost optimistic. So I wanted to ask you, too, if there was some hope at Mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said almost optimistic, because... That was, I wanted that impression to come through and I was nervous of whether it did. And you were such an astute reader to to pick up on that. Um, But yeah, I I wrote the stories out of order. I didn't know that it was a collection. I didn't know that it was a book. I didn't even know Mm. that it had an arc. I knew that I wanted to have different people tell stories about pivotal moments in their life. And I wanted them to live near each other. I wanted them to also have hovering over them the social impending fact of of gentrification. But I didn't want gentrification itself to be a story because Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell as a story. Gentrification is hard to tell as a Mm -hmm. story. Like I think police cruelty, although it's such a terrorizing subject, it's such a horrible subject, might be slightly easier to tell as a story in that like something horrible happens, cops do something bad, it results in horrible tragedy and things happen. And there's kind of a beginning, middle, end. whereas gentrification is just like, well, some people move in, some people stay, some people like it, some people don't. And so for me, gentrification didn't have that, that arc, but I did want the first story to talk about how one survives when they don't have much money and the looming looming rent happens. And I wanted that to be the stage up front. Mm. And I also wanted it, it to be revisited towards the end. So I just had the individual voices and then I just had the bookmarks of gentrification. And I think I ordered them in terms of which ones felt like would introduce Banneker the correct way. And then which ones would kind of resolve or pretend to resolve or at least address the continual presence of gentrification. So the middle stories um, all the middle stories, I kind of make it a point not to talk about urban renewal, but the first and the last one kind of revisit it. You used a word that was very much in my mind as I read it, which was aspirational or aspire. So many of these stories, I think uh, at least half, are written through the eyes of, of kids who are in, in Banneker mm. Terrace. 
and they aspire to get out. Katie raises an interesting point. Overall, do you feel readers are going to come away discouraged or do you think they're going to come away admiring the the aspirations of these kids? Mm. I think they will admire the aspirations. And if they are discouraged, they might be discouraged. They might just be presented with a real portrait of the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think the one of the very first poems we have middle schoolers, ninth graders read is, is the Langston use the poem that says, what happens to a dream deferred. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful poem because it, it helps us or it, it forces us to reckon with what has been proposed as um, this this glorious idyllic version of the American dream. And then it asks you to reckon with like what happens when that doesn't happen. Mm. And I think no matter what social background one is from, you've always either communicated or I've heard someone communicate a dream and you have one of two reactions. And the first one, hopefully, you know, the more optimistic one, it's like, wow, work hard and it'll happen. And then there's that one where we don't always communicate it. When someone's mm-hmm. telling us something in our mind, like, really? Yeah. You want to go to the NBA? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, when these characters are communicating a dream, when Mimi's communicating a dream where she just wants to move upstate, like, why does that hit us the same way as someone who says, I want to be a a billionaire? Like her dream is a very reasonable dream. So I don't know. It's not like on her that like, this seems unrealistic. And I hope readers kind of are forced to realize like, Whoa, you know, it, I am discouraged, but I'm discouraged for people who want reasonable things. And Kay, I, you know, you were, you were talking about the almost optimistic and Mr. Murray's playing chess and his dream is he just wants people to visit his side of the street and he's, he wants to form a chess club. And, for, you know, I try to write in a way where you hear that and you're like, oh, poor man, you're not, there's not going to be a chess club. But at the same time, we root for him at, and, I don't know. I think that was just my silly or horrible attempt at making us kind of look at the world and think about what's realistic in terms of goals and aspirations. And if they're not realistic, asking the questions of, well, why isn't that a realistic dream? I am fascinated because Miss Dallas, Mm. Miss Dallas, the short story, which is one of the more wrenching short stories, and you yourself, a teacher, a special ed teacher, did that story Mm. come about Mm. before you had classroom experience or did that person, did that, is that a very personal story that came from some of your Mm. experiences in the classroom? Yeah, that story came. Yeah, I, I, I probably had been teaching maybe a good six or seven years. And, you know, I think the one thing about public schools that I, that is, is a great thing is that if you want to know what's going on in the class, or if you just even want like service or to just know about a school, then you got to go to the secretary, the school aides, paraprofessionals. They really know 
how to get you supplies. They really know what a dynamic is in the class. Mm. And I've, I've read and seen countless stories from teachers' perspectives and from student perspectives. And, you know, I think Ms. Dallas is the fly on the wall who kind of observes both. I think, especially with that scene where it's the kids are being asked, are you poor? Are you rich? And a lot of them say, like, they're rich. I think of something um, Michelle Obama said in her memoir where she grew up not rich. And I've heard a lot of people who didn't grow up rich say the same thing. And I say the same thing about my up, my own upbringing. And what I constantly hear is that I didn't know I was poor. You know, I've heard countless people say that. And it kind of speaks to what truly is, you know, comfort. Mm. You know, there's one thing to not be rich, but most of my my students, I found when I asked that question, I realized that most of my students come from places where they're loved and where they're provided for. It may not be a trip to Paris, as Mr. Brodrick asks, but they feel warm and they, they have uh, food provided for them, meal, shelter and whatnot. And that's what I kind of learned from that. But yeah, teaching te- teaches you a lot, just the same way being a parent teaches you. I wanted to ask you about the introduction. The introduction is a very powerful poem, and in a way, it gets you set for the range of stories that you're about to hear, and gets you set, in some ways, for a book of storytelling. And what I wanted is, did the intro come at the end? Like, when did that poem, which is a unique choice, I don't see that many uh, mm. fiction books start with a mm. poem. What was the genesis of that? Mm. The first version of the poem came midway through writing the book. And then that version of the poem came at the very end, at the very end when I got to reflect on the whole book. And it's 16 lines and it's rhyming couplets. And I say this to say that I'm so flattered that you call it a poem because (laughs) it is a poem, but it's also a hip hop verse, you know? And that's my way of, my very first creative output was just writing hip hop verses, being a rapper, being an MC. Mm. And I always think about like the publication of this book. And I think about like maybe people who knew me in college, like if people who knew me in college kind of saw this book, they'd be like, oh, it's Sadiq, the rapper (laughs) who wrote fiction. And I always wanted to be like, oh, you know, like I'm not just a rapper, I can tell stories. And then when I've told these stories, there was part of me that's like, I'm a rapper. And this is my like tiny bit of homage to my very first love. And so it's a rap at the beginning and it sets the scene that these are tenants who are telling their story. And the question is whether they uh, will prevail or not. So you're about to become a published author. Dun, dun, dun. First book. I wonder what your students think of this. They must be proud. What's their reaction? They're very, very proud. You know, I love, love students. It's inspired them to write. And they're proud. It's, it's so interesting the way they're the different ways that their pride manifests like one student was like mister when i become famous i'm gonna plug your book i'm gonna plug your book (laughs) and they're like oh (laughs) and so 
Yes. But then also, I'm also very, very secretive person, you know, like in a lot of ways, I view it like a conflict of interest. Whereas like, I'm here to teach you of mice and men and um, to kill a mockingbird, not stories from the tenants downstairs. And, you know, (laughs) so I don't really plug it that much, but somehow kids, they always find out and they're, you know, they're, they've been very warm about it. They've been very warm. But then at the same time, teaching is a humbling experience. You know, like it doesn't matter how, what you've written, you know, you come into the class and you're still Mr. Fofana. And if you say something, you give them a little too much homework, they remind you that you're not uh, the story from the tennis downstairs guy. You're the guy that just gave us uh, a 10 page paper to do by the end of the year. And I can tell you the English teacher that lit the spark for me, Dr. Jane Cole, who's no longer with us, but who I owe an immense amount to. In your acknowledgments, you thank Mr. Randall for your ninth grade English class. Tell me about Mr. Randall and what was, what was the favorite book that you have that he taught? Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Mr. Randall, he uh, taught me ninth grade English at Roxbury Latin school in Boston. And it's funny, as an educator, you take on the personality of your your English teacher. One thing that he did was he would give us pop quizzes, just random unannounced quizzes on on because he wanted to make sure that we were reading thoroughly. But he would also like scale them. So like if you got like a four out of ten, it you got like a B. It's like it's four out of ten is forty, but you got a B. But I think that was his way of saying like, yeah, I just wanted you guys to read and I'm asking you rote imagination, or, you know, rote questions, but that doesn't measure reading. And uh, another thing I remember about him was he's always his punchline or his like the line that he always kept hitting us with was like, I want your work to be of publishable quality. So he would just kind of tear it apart in a very loving way to make sure that like, it read as something that was very smooth and could be published in its final form. We read The Odyssey. I remember there was a TV uh, movie at the same time, and I was just so delighted to come to class to be like, yeah, Mr. Randall, I read, I watched the TV version. So The Odyssey, we read Separate Piece, and the book I'll always remember is A Farewell to Arms because he was a tough grader. Mm-hmm. I got mostly Bs and Cs, right? I started off, my first assignment was like, I got a C, then I got like constant like B's, B pluses, but then the farewell to arms and just talking about the, the nurse relationship with the patient. That was the very first paper I got in the A range. And I was so proud of it. I have it downstairs in my basement to this day. <laughs> I have that. <laughs> uh, students should be proud of you. Mr. Randall should be proud of you. And we are mm-hmm. so hopeful for you that this book, a first novel, Sadiq Fofana, is a great success. It should be. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So the rapid fire with Sadiq Fofana. Sadiq, who's the most influential writer or the most influential book in your life? Native Son by Richard Wright. Mm-hmm. That was the book that showed me that you could tell a story and make a social statement at the same time. Hmm. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Definitely reading. And to the point where I read to procrastinate from writing. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite time to read with all those student papers. Do you get do you get uh, do you get some time where you can just sit back and read for pleasure? Yeah, my favorite time to read is in the evening or late afternoon, whether it be in um my classroom when all the kids are gone or in the basement on my comfortable but very worn futon. <laughs> <laughs> they, your wife's probably like why do we have that futon um revered book you read revered book that you read that maybe you wish you hadn't oh revered book that i read that i wish i hadn't i mean the only book that comes to mind is um infinite jest by david foster wallace i read it because it was so long but i wouldn't say i hadn't wished i didn't wish i I wouldn't say I didn't wish I hadn't read it, but it took a long, long time. I'm with you. I'm with you. I read it during the pandemic and I was like, I'll skip the footnotes. And then I realized that the footnotes were pages and pages and pages long and they actually had something to do with the story. And I, I read an article because um, I looked up what, what's up with the footnotes. So I looked up um, David Foster Wallace gave an interview before he passed and he wrote, he wrote, um, well, I just kind of wanted to jar the reader and interrupt their reading process. And and my response was, well, what the hell did I ever do to you except for buy this really big book? <laughs> well, why are you annoyed at me? I don't understand. With the first book coming out, I suspect you're a little nervous. Are you going to read your reviews? Yeah, I'm very nervous. I'm not going to read reviews. It's funny because when I'm in a workshop or getting feedback from peers, I, I will read that critique letter hungrily. But reviews, I think, are more for the readers. And I don't want to be too discouraged by people who don't like it. And I don't want to be too amped up by people who you know think it's, it's really good. Although it does feel good to hear praise. If you get a bad review, Sadiq, send them to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Favorite book to read to your kid? Uh, this book called Trombone Shorty. It's about this real-life guy. He's a New Orleans musician who taught himself to play trombone, and he's you know very famous and wrote a children's book. If I wasn't a writer and I wasn't a teacher, what would I like to be? I would be a delivery man. And that's the job I worked in high school, a little bit of college. And again, I will do anything that will give me stories. So I will be an Uber driver. 
a delivery man. Yeah, any any job that will allow me to experience stories. <laughs> so we, we stole this question from Stephen Colbert, but we always find it illuminating. In five words, describe what you want the rest of your life to be. You know, and I, I knew this question was coming because of the, <laughs> the other episodes, right? Shout out to Mary, Laura, um, Phil Pot, and um, Nile Williams. I would say giving was the best gift is that five yes that's very good yeah so no matter what if i'm at the end of my life you could say that i gave more than anything then that's a a, a life lived sadiq fofana an amazing conversation with i think an amazing writer that we'll see a lot more from I, there are a couple of things that really stay with me from this book and from our, our conversation. One, I think he justified brilliantly the way he marries narrative perspective with the individual story. The first chapter being about the woman who can't make rent. And he writes it in an almost command point of view. You will do this and you will do that and you will do this. And it puts an extra pressure on the reader. It makes them feel trapped the same way that the narrator feels trapped by making the rent. And it really transforms the story. The last chapter of the older gentleman who just wants a chess club, and basically he's having a conversation with you like you just sat down at the table, that adds to the story. His narrative perspective really adds to the story he's trying to tell in a beautiful way. The other thing that stays with me is what he said about gentrification and how difficult it is to write about and why he built the arc of his story the way that he did and how gentrification played almost the central role in the arc that he built. Gentrification is a slow, insidious process. It's difficult to write. It's difficult to chart. And in some ways, this book is the story of gentrification. And I think even though it's a relatively short book, this isn't going to be one of your doorstop Bible-sized books. He really pulls it off, I think. What do you take away from it? Oh, I'm glad you worked me in there. <laughs> I was I was worried you were going to sort of run out the whole podcast. But, oh, gee, thanks. What was it you were asking, Kate? What did I take away? Oh, I'm so pleased to mention that. Uh, the stories are gritty. And, and, but what I loved is many of the stories obviously come from his students, that he takes away much from his classroom. He gives in his classroom and he takes away. As he mentioned, getting these stories is some of the perks of teaching. There aren't many perks, but th this is one of them. My favorite part is when one of the teachers says to the kids, are you rich, are you in the middle, or are you poor? And the majority of them hold up their hands and say, we're rich. And their justification is that their moms can buy them things. And you realize, of course, that those mothers are sacrificing. They're giving up the new pair of shoes or the handbag or food, maybe, who knows uh, what they're giving up, but they want to do for their kids. He obviously loves his students. And, and, and I also love that part where one of the kids says, Mr. Fafana, when I get rich, I'm going to plug your book. Anna Quinlan, in the podcast we had with her, made the point that teachers are so important. Behind family, maybe the most important people in your life. And you mentioned Jane Cole, who I knew well, was a wonderful teacher who made such a difference in your life. We all have one of those teachers, and it just makes a difference. If you're lucky enough to have one or two of those teachers in your life, when I read the books that we read, especially debut authors, I always go hunting in the acknowledgments to find out if they thanked a teacher. 
Jane Cole is no longer with us, but she is, she was one of those teachers in my life. She gave me a love of reading that has lasted my whole life and now has become my life. And I'm so thankful for that. And so I'm thankful to Mr. Randall too, who gave Sadiq Fafana that torch that I enjoyed so much in his book. So English teachers out there, love you. Uh, The name of the book is Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. We hope you read it. We hope it succeeds. We hope uh, that he will continue to write because he does it well. As always, we want to marry this uh, interview and discussion with a bookstore somewhere in the country. Today, it is Women and Children First Bookstore. It is in Chicago, and Lynn Mooney is one of the owners. Lynn Mooney of Women and Children First Bookshop, it is good to have you with us. That's an idiosyncratic name. If I come in, do I have to stand at the end of the line? We would welcome you in with open arms. It is an unusual name. Uh, We were founded in 1979 as a feminist bookstore by two second-wave feminists who were also members of the LGBTQ community. And we've been successfully both a feminist bookstore and a neighborhood bookstore ever since. In 2014, the two founders retired, and two of us on the staff became the store's second generation of ownership. And we spent some time updating the mission a bit to have a stronger intersectional focus and focus more deliberately on trans-affirming and anti-racist feminism. So I went to college in Chicago. I know that talking about the neighborhood, where you are, where you're from, really important in Chicago. So I know that your neighborhood is probably important to your store. Tell us a little bit about where you are and, and what that location means to the store. I appreciate the opportunity because I firmly believe we wouldn't be the store we are if we weren't located in Andersonville. Andersonville is actually important in the history of the localism movement in this country. It's the place where data was first collected and analyzed, proving that localism is more than just a feel-good movement, but it's actually a strong, viable economic model. With your tradition as a feminist bookstore, as one that wants to appeal to the LGBTQ community and also be a mainstream bookstore at the same time, How does that differ your approach? It helps that we are located in a neighborhood that is very politically progressive. At one point, I read that it has the largest per capita population of lesbians in the city. You know, I don't know how much of it is chicken and how much of it is egg, but it's the perfect neighborhood for us. I'm told that over the years, uh, members of the LGBTQ community have congregated in Andersonville. There are other neighborhoods as well, too, but because they felt safe and supported. And I think historically, the business I co-own has been part of why. Selling really well for you right now. What titles are, are leaping off your shelf? I think one that I'm pleased that's doing really well this year is a book called Easy Beauty by Chloe Johnson. We were fortunate enough to have an event with her. It was one of our first in-person events of the last 28 months. And it's beautifully written memoir, but also no holds bar. I think it's going to be an important sort of paradigm-shifting book that I want to get into as many readers' hands as possible because it sheds light on the experience of members of the disability community in a way that 
uh, most of us had not had that insight to before. At least I had not. And how about some of the staff recommendations? Do you have some in mind? Well, Easy Beauty is definitely one of those as well. Favorite mine that just came out in paperback is Elizabeth Strout's most recent book, Oh, William. Her books just always have such an intense but true feeling emotional impact, but they're also so tightly controlled and crafted. I just, I just love the artistry of her work. Also, we've been reading some interesting nonfiction around self-care, um, life decisions. Two of the big ones for us have been Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Glover Tawab, and also 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. So many of the authors we've talked to have said that what brought them into writing and reading is that when you find yourself in a book and it tells your story, that is what makes you a reader. And that can happen whether you're an adult or a child. If you weren't fortunate enough to have that moment as a child, if it can happen for you as an adult, that's that's beautiful too. It's not too late. And I'm hoping it's happening more and more for more people, more kinds of people, um, people who've been marginalized in the past. Lynn Mooney, it is a great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Women and Children First. It is on North Clark Street in Chicago. And she assures me I don't have to stand at the end of the line. So it's not just Women and Children First. I might, no, Lynn, I might make him stand in the back of the line just because I might make him stand in the back of the line. Like, if there's no problem with that. Uh, I'm not going there. <laughs> you can't lure me into this. <laughs> All <laughs> so the best to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lynn. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. Lynn Mooney, one of the owners of the Women and Children First Bookstore on North Clark Street in Chicago. Kate, we last week made a little plug for the uh, listeners to subscribe. Yes, actually, I want to make a couple of changes to it, because as long as we're looking at your shopping to-do list, not just get on, listen to us, and subscribe to us, but if you have something nice to say, and please only if you have something nice to say, please rate and, and review us. Not only... And we do read them if you're nice enough to write them, and do make them positive. Kate makes a good point. There's so much negativity around. Does that help? the podcast from what we understand about the industry, but also we read them and we actually take your suggestions. A couple of folks have written in about bookstores that they like, or would you mind doing this? We wouldn't generally mind doing this. So whatever it is that you would like us to do, we, we like to read those suggestions and take them into consideration. And we will get to those bookstores. We will try to get to those bookstores that people have suggested. Yes, absolutely. We love that. And as long as we're on public service announcements, I'm going to do something that's just a little persnickety. I'm listening to a book, and I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name names, but I'm listening to a book that has used the word orientated, not once, but twice. Writers out there, orientated, not a word, not a word. Please don't use it. Oriented is the word. I never get to be persnickety. Anybody who knows me knows I couldn't be less persnickety. But I'm listening to the book, and when I heard the narrator read it, not once but twice, I went, Jane Cole! So please don't do that. <laughs> Aren't you persnickety? Anyway, we want to pay tribute. We've gone a little long with this podcast, but we thought the conversation with Sadiq was important and interesting, and we hope you felt the same way, too. We do want to give credit to the people who 
make this podcast possible. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shortavian. So in the words of an uh, iconic line from, from EPMD, relax your mind and let your conscience be free. Mm-hmm.